Would you join me in prayer as we invite God's presence among us today and that we might be attentive to what it is that he wants to tell us and show us this morning. Let's pray together, okay? Father, we invite you now, as we've already begun this time together, to to fill this place with your presence, that we might um, experience the fragrance of Christ, that we might experience the love that you have for us, that has been poured out in Christ through your spirit, that we might be people who today anticipate something afresh from you today. So I ask, Father, that you would blow afresh through us, that you would surprise us by what it is that you want to do in us and through us today. So we invite you, we ask you to be present among us. In your name, amen. I recently attended a conference in Alexandria, Virginia, right across the Potomac River from Washington, D.C., and I had to get up early on a Tuesday morning to go to LAX to arrive there to be able to go through the pre-boarding drill. As I stood in this long, winding security line listening to this monotone voice bark orders at us to remove our shoes and our jackets and our belts and to put our laptops in the separate table, separate tray... I was struck by this question, what if 9-11 never happened? What if 9-11 never happened? You ever thought about that recently? We've become so used to living in a world that's post 9-11 that we don't think about what life might have been like before that. But what if 9-11 had not happened? Would our airport experience be more pleasant? <laughs> I think so. Uh, What would be different in terms of the Middle East? Would the balance of power be different in the Middle East? Would would the U.S. have invaded Iraq? And what about Afghanistan? Would there be such a thing as ISIS? I think it's fascinating to ask the what-ifs of history. What if Alan Turing had, had not broken the Enigma Code in World War II? What if Abraham Lincoln had not been assassinated? Or add to that JFK or Martin Luther King? How might history have been changed? What if Watergate had never happened? What if the hanging chads had swung Florida into the wind column for Al Gore? And here's another one. What if Pentecost had never happened? What if Pentecost had never happened? Would we notice anything different? Would our culture notice anything different? Would our city notice anything different? I think for a lot of people, if Pentecost had never happened, nothing would change. Life would go on just as it's always going on. The direction of people's lives, the way they work, the way they do life would not change in the least bit. What about you? Would anything be different for you if Pentecost had not happened? And what about us as a church? Would we notice anything different if Pentecost had not happened? You see, to raise that question is to also raise the larger question, and that is, what difference should Pentecost make? And that's a question I want to briefly unpack with you for just a few minutes this morning. And I want to begin with, what is Pentecost? Because for those who might be new to grace or might be exploring life as a follower of Jesus, it's important to understand what Pentecost is. Pentecost means 50, and it stands for, it it points to the 50 days following the Jewish fast. Passover, it was the Greek word for an Old Testament feast known as the Feast of Weeks. And that's seen in Exodus 23 and Deuteronomy 16. 
And over time, Pentecost became less associated with, an, with agriculture, and it became more associated with God's giving of the law to Moses at Mount Sinai 50 days after Israel left Egypt. But when you move into the New Testament, the writers associate Pentecost with the outpouring of the Spirit recorded in Acts 2. So Pentecost was the day that God the Holy Spirit was poured out and came upon a group of Christ followers gathered in Jerusalem. It was a turning point in God's working in human history. Because it was that day that the, the church was born. It was the birthday of the church. It's a, it a time that the people of God gathered around Jesus were filled with the Spirit in a way that they had never known before. And so while we usually associate Pentecost with Luke's version in Acts chapter 2, I'd like to direct your attention just briefly to Jesus' words about the outpouring of the Spirit recorded in John chapter 7. So if you have a Bible, turn to John chapter 7, the ones underneath your seat, page 892. And just want to focus on three verses just briefly, verses 37 to 39 of John chapter 7. John says this in John 7, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now, you may be asking the question, where's Pentecost in John chapter 7? I mean, I'm used to Acts chapter 2 where you have the, the mighty rushing wind, you have Peter's speech, you have the tongues of fire, you have, you have people hearing in their own language, you hear, you have the, everyone being filled with the Spirit. I'm used to Acts 2. Where is Pentecost in John chapter 7? Well, let's look a, a little bit more closely at this text. If you look over at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 7, you see the this, this setting that Jesus goes up to Jerusalem for the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles also known as a Feast of Booths. And this feast had to do with Israel's celebration of their exodus from Egypt. So many of their festivals were about their deliverance from Egypt. During the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths, the, <clears throat> the priests would go down to the Pool of Siloam and he would gather water, he would collect water, and he would come up to the temple and he would pour out that water in the temple area. For seven days, the priest would go down to the pool of Siloam. He would come up to the, the temple area and he would pour this water out. And this was to symbolize God's giving of, of water from the rock in the wilderness. It was a way of symbolizing God's provision of life when they were in the wilderness and they were, it looked, things looked so bleak for them. You see that in Exodus chapter 17. But on the eighth day... And the last day of this festival, Jesus stands up in the temple area and he says this, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Imagine, here is Jesus on the final day of this feast, and a, a feast that was pointing to, a celebration that was pointing to Israel's exodus and God's provision, and now Jesus is saying, wait a minute, this is about me. This has come to its fullness of understanding in me. It's come to its conclusion in me. Jesus is echoing the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 55.1 where 
The prophet Isaiah calls to the people to come to God's banquet, looking forward to the new creation where he would provide. Isaiah 55, 1, come all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And Jesus now takes this act of pouring out water, this symbol of God's provision in the Exodus, and he transforms it around himself. Jesus is saying, I am going to do this. I am the one through whom God's promises are fulfilled. If you follow me, you'll experience a new exodus. If you follow me, you'll find water that satisfies. But what's interesting, he then changes the image from people satisfying their thirst to there being a source of water for others. Look at verse 38. He says, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Again, you may be saying, okay, fine, but where is Pentecost in John 7? Well, John explains Jesus' actions in verse 39. And he's orienting his readers to an important sequence of events in verse 39. If you look down at verse 39. Now this he said about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. This, it literally reads, the Spirit was not yet because Jesus was not yet glorified. In other words, the Spirit being poured out as rivers of living water is tied to Jesus' glorification. That's what the text says. Which raises the question, what is Jesus' glorification? And throughout John's Gospel, John is building up to Jesus' glorification. And John, Jesus and John attach it to Jesus being lifted up. That's the language that Jesus uses in John chapter 12. That when Jesus is lifted up and is speaking of his crucifixion... He will be glorified. So the glorification has to do with Jesus' crucifixion. It's at his crucifixion that Jesus lift, is lifted up. And it's at that act where God's glory is revealed. It's at Jesus' crucifixion where God's love that was at work in him all along is most fully revealed. And that love seen throughout, God's, throughout John's gospel it's a cleansing, restoring love. That's the beauty of reading John's gospel. You see this love that is being poured out that Jesus has for the world. It takes people as they are. It takes people that are damaged and confused and fearful, people like you and me, and it pours out God's abundant, forgiving and healing life. So you see, once Jesus was glorified, God would pour out his spirit like the rivers of living water as described in John chapter 7. Now here's the kicker. The sequence has already happened. Right? Jesus has been crucified. Jesus died. Jesus has been glorified. Pentecost has happened. The Spirit has been poured out. And that means that what John is talking about and describing here in John chapter 7 has already taken place. The Spirit has been poured out like rivers of living water. It's called the day of Pentecost. And while we might be more familiar with Acts chapter 2 or, or John's version in John chapter 20, he's pointing to Pentecost. So do you see what this is telling us? Do you see what this is telling everyone who shares in the life of Jesus? Look again at verse 38. Let your eyes go down to the page. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. 
Because of the Spirit being poured out at Pentecost, we are now the source of Jesus' life to others. You and I are the source of Jesus' life to others because of Pentecost. You and I are the source of life to others because of Pentecost. We have the life of Jesus in us, and that is meant to go out to others. In other words, we're not simply people gathered to have our own thirst satisfied. Put it that way. I think that many Christians have been led to believe that Spirit has been given so that we might have a relationship with God, we might enjoy the presence of God, we might worship God. And that is true, but that's only part of the story. It's not the whole part. And to stop there is to risk becoming like a lake instead of a river of living water. It's beautiful and it's serene, but it's in danger of becoming stagnant. And if your perception is that the Spirit was given so you could just come and receive and be satisfied, be fed, then you're going to become like a beautiful lake that is stagnant. Because Jesus has given His Spirit so that we might become rivers of living water to people around us, so that the life of Jesus might flow out of us into the lives of others, so that they might experience that transformation. N.T. Wright puts it this way. I love this quote. He says, God doesn't give the Holy Spirit in order to let Christians enjoy the spiritual equivalent of a day at Disneyland. The point of the Spirit is to enable those who follow Jesus to take into all the world the news that Jesus is Lord, that He has won the victory over the forces of evil, that a new world has opened up, and that we are to help make it happen. Isn't that amazing? That's who we are. That's where we are in time. That's what this is about. That's why we exist. So the Pentecost people described by Jesus in John chapter 7 are people who are rivers of living water for the world. Man, if, 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 that, if that settles in on you, then you cannot just walk around and have a normal day. How was your day? It can't be normal. You're carrying the life of Jesus. Everywhere you go, there's a possibility of that life flowing out on someone else and someone experiencing the love of God and being transformed by the love of God. It doesn't mean that everybody's going to become a follower of Jesus that you encounter each day, but it's very possible that many, many people will experience the love of Jesus through you and through me. That means that no day is going to be normal for the people we encounter. Why? Because they're going to encounter Jesus in us. Is that amazing or what? Or is it just me that's really excited today? (laughs) I will still be excited. Even if you guys weren't here, I would still be excited. This is phenomenal. This has been life transforming for me. I cannot go into a conversation with people except for the realization that there's a possibility that they are going to encounter Jesus. Not me, not Lou. It's not about Lou. It's about Jesus. And I really believe that they can encounter Jesus. And I look forward to how Jesus might use my encounter with people to bring his love and to bring his life to people. It makes life so much more interesting. Better than sitting around watching TV and playing video games. Or doing all the other things we do to anesthetize ourselves. So because the Spirit has given us life, we are the source of life for others. And because of that, this is our vocation. This is our calling. This is the role we play in the drama of redemption. We are players. And this is our role. Now Daniel will expand on this more in a few minutes. In just a moment, we'll transition into receiving the bread and cup. This is a very different service. We we 
For those of you who have just been coming in as I was speaking, this is a very different service today because it's Pentecost. It's going to be very interactive. And you received this little leaf as you came in. Pull that out because we're going to add a dimension of participation to the bread and cup this morning. As you see, the tree of life behind us, the, the, the tree and the leaves are a symbol of life. We're asking the question this morning, where might you trust the Spirit for fresh life? Where might you trust the Spirit for fresh life? If you didn't receive one of these leaves and you would like to receive one, put your hand up right now. Some people will help you get one. Yeah, don't don't be afraid. Just stick your hand up. All right? We're asking the question, where might you trust the Spirit for fresh life? And you just write that on the leaf. And I'm going to give you two minutes to, to reflect on that, to maybe pray and write it down. And then we'll bring them forward during the bread and cup time. And we'll exchange our longings, as it were. We'll bring the leaves forward. We'll put them in the box. And we'll exchange our longings for the fresh life that Jesus wants to give us. The bread and cup point to the life of Jesus. So it's it's a very embodied act of trusting Jesus, of stepping in to the fresh life that he wants to give to us. So write, write down right now for just about... 45 seconds, maybe a minute, minute and a half. Where might you trust the Spirit for fresh life? And then we'll transition into the bread and cup. Can these dry bones live? Is what God asked the prophet Ezekiel as he looks upon a valley full of dry, dead bones. Oh Lord God, you alone know, is all Ezekiel can say. So God says, prophesy over these bones. Tell them I will give them my breath and they shall live. I will piece the bones together and cover them with flesh. Again, I will breathe upon them and they will live and they will know that I am the Lord. And then say to them, I will put my spirit in you and you shall live. Ezekiel proclaims what God has told him to proclaim and there's a rattling and bones are coming together. And it's as if a vast army is before him. I mean, this text, you can feel it. You can see it. It's alive. And this text asks us to imagine a moving from death to life that is only possible because of the very breath of God. The dry bones cannot piece themselves back together. They cannot give themselves flesh. It is only possible because God alone holds the power of life and death. Now such a text reminds us on Pentecost that human beings, as much as we try, cannot save ourselves. We cannot make ourselves live. God alone holds the power of life and of death. And without the transforming life of the Spirit, we are like dry, dead bones, scattered and displaced, with no future to hope toward. But we, as God's people who have received the very breath and Spirit of God, that is not the case. We have life. We have God's life. And Jesus, in the Gospels, breathes upon his disciples 
the Spirit, and he sends them out. And if we have received the Spirit, then we are sent out as well. And much like Ezekiel, we are to look around us at the valleys of dry, dead bones, and we are to imagine that something new can be possible. Because of God's breath, because of God's life, because of God's very spirit being poured out. And so we, as God's people, are to be people with imaginations robust enough to imagine that new things are possible. Do we have imagination as God's people? As we encounter people, as we have conversations with people, as we are with people day to day, do we imagine that something better is possible for them because of the transforming life of the Spirit? As God's people, we are called to have robust imaginations. And perhaps we experience far less of God's Spirit because of a failure of imagination. Perhaps we don't see God outpouring His Spirit more and more because we can't imagine that He wants to do that in those valleys that are dry and dead, in those lives of people that we know where for all intents and purposes seem as if they are dead and there is no coming back. As God's people, we are sent out to be people of imagination. So that with that imagination, we can be a voice of hope for others. And hope is only possible with imagination. Imagination is what makes hope possible. Jesus, after he was baptized, after he was given the Spirit, in Luke 4, he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim the good news of the gospel to set free those who are oppressed, to give liberty to those who are captives, that those who are blind might see, that those who are lame might walk. Jesus, given the Spirit, is sent out. And he has imagination for people, but he also has hope. And it isn't in that hope that God actually wants to do something new and has begun to do something new, that he will touch people who need to be healed and they are healed. Those who need to be brought back in to community and to family will remind them that they are not alone. Those who are dead like Lazarus will call into the tomb to come out and people will raise from the dead. Jesus knew because of the power of the Spirit that what he saw wasn't all there was. The kingdom of God wanted to break in and it was breaking in through Jesus. And that same spirit has been breathed upon us. We have the life of Jesus and we are sent out to proclaim the good news of the gospel. And we are to hope for those who have no hope for themselves. The church is called to be hope for the world. Do we hope well for others? For those whom we know who haven't received the life of Jesus, or even for those who have, 
said that they've received the life of Jesus, when their marriages are crumbling, do we sit alongside of them and say, there's no hope? No, because the Spirit of God, there is hope. For those who are addicted or the, those who, who are alcoholics, those who are codependent, do we just look upon them and say, that is the end of their story? No, because with the Spirit of God, there is always a new possible future. For those who think that their lives are like dry, dead bones, we say, the Spirit of God can be breathed upon you and you can rise up again. We can hope for those who themselves have no more hope. So many times over the last year I've heard this, is this what my life will be like forever? Is this all I can expect? With the transforming life of the Spirit, I can say, no. You can expect so much more. Because God is a God of the impossible because God is the one who alone holds the breath of life and he can breathe upon you something new. And if we do not have hope for those who do not hope for themselves, then we cannot be faithful to them because in order to to endure in relationship with others, in order to be faithful friends, in order to be those who will encourage and challenge We need hope for that endurance in relationship. Otherwise, what's possible? And if nothing else is possible, then when we begin to lose our hope and our encouragement and our faithfulness, and we will want to walk away because it's so easy. But if we have hope which is fueled by imagination, then we can endure alongside of people in their valleys, as they're dry, when they're dead, and we can be a voice of something new. When we come to people and it's as if they are dead, it's as if they are in the tomb, we don't have to walk away because we know that God can breathe again and they might rise up again and experience the life that Jesus offers we as God's people are his very breath to the world you are God's breath of life to the world wherever you are wherever you might be with whom you might be speaking You are God's breath of life. That is our calling. That is what we are sent out to do. To go to the valleys, to go to those dry, dead bones. And when God says, can these bones live? We say, yes. Thanks be to God. We want to provide an opportunity for us 
to engage our imaginations on behalf of others. And so you should have received coming in a card like this with a picture of dry land and dead bones on the front. Now, if you didn't receive it, raise your hand. We'll have greeters pass them out. Now, on the back of this card, there is a question that we are to reflect upon. The question is, what difference might the transforming life of the Spirit make if, and there's a place to insert a name, if that person received it? What difference might the transforming life of the Spirit make if the person that comes to mind for you received it? Now, why this question, and why the blank, and why time to think about it? Because as we are God's breath of life to the world, as we want to see the life of the Spirit poured out, it begins with names. It begins with people. And people you know. So this is an opportunity to write down a name and to engage your imaginations of what difference the Spirit of God might make in that person's life. Like actually real difference, tangible difference of what you would want to see God do. Because imagination feels hope, and hope feels faithfulness. So this is an opportunity to engage, to engage in that process. Now there will also be an opportunity, and I will let you know when this happens, where you can actually, after you write down this name, there will be people who will be praying on the sides here. And you can bring this card to someone and to pray with them on behalf of this person or if you're not even sure how to pray they can pray for you and for the person that you named now this is a step of faith like this is an opportunity to take a step forward of saying okay God I want to see this happen you alone hold the power of life and death make this happen this is an opportunity to pray with someone so that that can actually take place so that someone's life might be animated with the very spirit of God. So I'm going to give you a few moments to write down a name, to think of someone, and then I will let you know when we transition into worship and coming forward to be, to be praying with someone. So just take a few moments to imagine. Father, you are good. You Breathe life. Breath of God, breathe upon us afresh. Empower us by your spirit to be your very breath to the world. Amen.